Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, the assistant editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books in History. Today I'm speaking to Professor Kay Harita to discuss his fantastic new book, Hannah Arendt and Isaiah Berlin, Freedom, Politics, and Humanity. Professor Harita is an assistant professor at Aarhus University in Denmark. His new book examines the philosophical and political ideas of two of the 20th century's most iconic thinkers and their unfriendly and occasionally hostile relationship. Professor Harita, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So first, I'd just uh, like if you could give our listeners a little bit of a background on yourself and how you became interested in this topic. Yes, um, so my name is Kei Hirata. It is pronounced Kei rather than Kai. And I am a political theorist based in North University of Denmark. I'm not from Denmark, however, I came to this country in 2000 19 to take up my current position. I'm originally from Tokyo, Japan, and did undergraduate at Keio University in Tokyo. I studied economics and intellectual history, which is a, a little funny combination, but it is possible in Japan. But I decided I was interested in contemporary political theory, so went to the UK and did my first master's degree in continental European political theory at the Essex University, which is one of the few universities in the UK where uh, continental political theory and philosophy are taken very seriously. But then I became curious about what was going on on the other side of the so-called analytic continental divide. So I went to Oxford to do another master's and I stayed in Oxford um, for my doctorate. I mentioned this because I think it is relevant to our conversation today. I had this slightly incoherent educational background doing intellectual history, continental political theory, and then analytic um, political theory. And in my book, I tried to use all of those different backgrounds to tell the story of Hannah Arendt and Isaiah Berlin. As to the question how I came to write this book, um, I think it was a bit of an accident. In 2008, I got involved in a small project about Isaiah Berlin, which had nothing to do with Hannah Arendt. But I went to the Bodleian Library, which is the University Library of Oxford, and began um, looking at some of the unpublished papers of Berlin. And I came across a fascinating exchange between Berlin and somebody called Bernard Crick, who was an important political theorist in the UK, a generation younger than Berlin. And also, among other things, he was one of the first British academics to recognize the importance and originality of Arendt's contributions to political theory. And there was this very interesting conversation between Berlin and Crick, Crick trying to persuade Berlin that Arendt is an important and interesting figure and she should be taken seriously. Whereas Berlin was kind of pushing back and telling Crick that he should stop taking her so seriously because um, she is not nearly as important or interesting as Crick said she was. 
I was intrigued by that conversation exchange, but I couldn't really do anything at that time because、um, in 2008, I had already begun writing my doctoral dissertation on a different topic. So I photocopied those letters, but、uh, left them in my bookshelf for quite some time. But when I finished writing my doctoral dissertation in 2011, I thought、uh, maybe I should go back to the Bodleian and look into further evidence to see whether Berlin had more to say about Hannah Arendt. And、uh, fortunately, in 2012, I got a postdoctoral fellowship at Oxford, so I went back to the city and went back to the Bodleian. And fairly quickly, it became apparent to me that there was a story to be told. So I published my first academic article about Arendt in Berlin in 2014, I think, followed by another one in 2016, and I ended up in writing a whole book about them. It's interesting you bring up this、uh, conversation or this exchange between Crick and Berlin, and this happened long after Berlin and Arendt had first met each other. I was wondering if you could give a little bit of background on them. Yes, that's right. They. Um, met in 1941 in New York. In 1941, they were not、um, academics, at least as we understand them today. In 1941, Hannah Arendt was a newly arrived refugee in New York, and she was trying to rebuild her life、uh, in the new country. And what she was doing at that time was to write columns for. German language paper called Aufbau. So she was a kind of a journalist, even though it wasn't a full time position, as it were. Berlin, on the other hand, was a government employee. He was、uh, working for the British government, and they met in 1941 because they were introduced by Kurt Blumenfeld. He was one of the leaders of the German Zionist movement, and somebody kind of responsible for.、Um, Introducing Arendt to the Zionist movement, and Arendt and Berlin met,、uh, introduced by him. So they met not as people who theorize politics, but rather、uh, political actors、um, doing something in the real world. We do not know much about this first meeting in 1941. The、um, only records we have of this meeting are Berlin's recollections. And according to his recollections, there are probably two things that stand out. One is that the personal chemistry between Arendt and Berlin was pretty bad from the very outset. They had very different dispositions. And the other thing was that they disagreed on the Zionist movement. According to Berlin, Arendt struck him as somebody committed to fanatical. Zionism. I think this phrase would strike us today as a little surprising because Hannah Arendt's、uh, reputation today is somebody who was highly critical of the Zionist movement, and that perception is of course not entirely wrong in the sense that she became profoundly disappointed in the direction in which the Zionist movement took by the late forties. But in this specific moment, in nineteen forty-one. Um, she was a vocal supporter of one strand of Zionism, which was quite militant and confrontational, and she was actively、um, supporting and advocating the formation of a Jewish army 
at that time and criticizing the kind of more mainstream Zionism as being um, too diplomatic, doing too much of uh, real politique. Whereas that was the version of Zionism that Berlin was in favor of. So there was this split between Arendt and Berlin in 1941 over the Zionist movement. So that um, was the first encounter and the context in which Berlin's dislike for Hannah Arendt began. So they then met soon, soon afterwards, and there was a, a bit of a reversal. Um, and I was wondering if you could could talk about that and Berlin's perception of Arendt flipping, flip-flopping on her views on Zionism. Yes, well, they met again in 1949, um, this time at Harvard University. The occasion was created by Arthur Schlesinger Jr., um, who was an important political scientist in the Cold War period. And Arendt and Berlin were brought together by him. Probably Schlesinger himself left the best record of the encounter, and I'm going to um, cite um, from his diary, which is the citation I began my book with. Uh, Schlesinger says, years ago, I brought Hannah and Isaiah together. The meeting was a disaster from the start. She was too solemn, portentous, Teutonic, Hegelian for him. She took his wit for frivolousness and thought him inadequately serious. So you can see that once again, this um, difference uh, in terms of dispositions, personalities um, came up. It was a disaster from the start, as Schlesinger would say. But the other issue that popped up during this meeting is something that you mentioned, which is the question of Zionism. As Berlin understood it, Arendt completely changed her position from fanatical Zionism, called fanatical Zionism, to the opposite extreme, which he described as an attack on the state of Israel. Now, of course, it is a matter of debate whether Arendt went through the kind of radical conversion that Berlin took her to have gone through, but that was the impression that he got. And given the particular timing um, when this meeting took place, 1949, it is hardly surprising that Berlin got that impression. Because 1949, obviously, was immediately after the establishment of the State of Israel, which happened in 1948. And Berlin welcomed that development as a kind of triumphant moment in the history of the Zionist movement. But that was not the outcome Arendt wanted to see, as I said, um, she was a kind of idiosyncratic Zionist, I think, even though um, there is a little room for disagreement on this issue. But the particular version of Zionism she supported was not the one that resulted in the creation of a nation state, because she had been critical of the idea of the nation state from very early on. So Berlin got that impression, and one of the conclusions he drew was Hannah Arendt should not be trusted because he thought Arendt changed her mind completely on such a fundamental issue. Uh, so Berlin came to dislike and also distrust Hannah Arendt by 1949. So to, to stay on this uh, sort of subject of Zionism uh, and their differing views on Zionism, Arendt very famously 
uh, did some reporting on the Adolf Eichmann trial. Uh, Adolf Eichmann was a, uh, a key player in the final solution. And he, after being discovered, was put on trial in Israel. Uh, actually, my great-grandmother, my grandmother, uh, Ida, my great-grandmother, Ida, was in attendance at the, the trial. And she and my great-great-aunt were uh, thrown out of the trial because they were talking too much. They were given several warnings that they were being uh, disruptive. And they were in such shock at the some of the revelations that came in the trial uh, that they <laughs> were quite quite rude and disruptive, understandably so, in my opinion. Uh, but yeah, so that's my my own little personal connection, and it also has cemented in my grandmother, at least in my discussions with her, a lifelong dislike of Hannah Arendt. Um, and uh, I, you know, I, I was wondering why is it that someone like my grandmother, much like someone like Berlin, would dislike Hannah Arendt because of her reporting on the Eichmann trial. Okay, well, thank you for sharing that little story. That's um, fascinating and and interesting. Um, so Berlin did not like Eichmann in Jerusalem, just like many other people from his generation. Um, there are two reasons why he and many others didn't like that book. One reason had to do with the famous subtitle of the book, The Banality of Evil. And the problem with this phrase is that it's not really clear what is meant by it. Arendt doesn't explain what she tried to say by using this seemingly provocative uh, phrase, banality of evil. And as a result, lots of people speculated what she might have meant by the phrase. And many people came to the conclusion that Arendt was in one way or another trying to minimize the significance of the crime committed by Adolf Eichmann. Arendt uh, would say later on that that's not what she intended to say, um, but I think this gap um, between her and um, her friendly readers on the one hand and her critics, embittered critics on the other hand, I think it never closed. And people still cannot agree on what she tried to say by this phrase, banality for evil. And Berlin uh, was not very happy with this phrase either. So that was one reason why um, her book was disliked in general and also disliked by Berlin in particular. Um, but that was not the most important issue, both for Berlin and for a large number of people from his generation. The larger issue was whether Hannah Arendt indulged in victim blaming, meaning whether she was too critical of Jewish leaders um, for failing to resist, ostensibly failing to resist the Nazi oppressors. Many people thought that Arendt was too critical. She should have been a lot more sympathetic because I think there is no question that she was critical of at least some of the Jewish leaders who she thought did not behave as they ought to have. And Berlin, for one, got scandalized by that claim because he thought she was lecturing on how Jewish leaders in a terrible situation ought to have behaved from the safety of New York, as he would say. 
And this was an explosive issue. And part of the problem was that Arendt's style or tone of writing is very, very confrontational. Uh, and that、um, scandalized a very large number of readers, especially American Jews, who were trying to come to terms with what happened during the war. And the politics of memory became extremely intense. The conflict between Arendt and Berlin was connected to that、um, controversy that came to be known as the Eichmann controversy, which is really about the Hannah Arendt controversy. It's very interesting, I think. Just considering these, their meetings and their differences. And I think one way, and, and I think you really drive this, this point in your book, is that Berlin was really a deeply embedded member of the Western intellectual establishment, specifically the British establishment, where Arendt, for a lot of her life,、uh, was a sort of self styled exile, outsider, anti establishment.、Um, They definitely had different temperaments. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to their, their differences in personality and possibly some of the ways in which their differences reflected their views and philosophical styles. Yes, well, before、um, going to a more general issue, I just wanted to add something in relation to the Eichmann controversy. So it is true that Arendt was a refugee and she saw herself as a refugee. And also,、um, she saw herself as a survivor. And that gave her the sense of responsibility, I think, she, that she has to say something about Eichmann. And she felt she was entitled, if it's the right term, to criticize some of the、um, Jewish leaders who. She thought did not behave because she herself was a survivor. Berlin was not a survivor, and then he didn't really see himself as a survivor. He、uh, migrated to England as an 11 year old boy, and his personal safety during the war was secure. So when he said Arendt should not、um, moralize over the conduct of Jewish leaders from the safety of New York, He probably did not quite understand that Arendt saw herself as standing in a little different position.、Um, go back to the more general question that you ask. Well, there are lots of things that can be said, but perhaps moving our conversation forward a little bit,、uh, one important difference between Arendt and Berlin, of course, is that Arendt was from Germany. Whereas Berlin was born in Riga, which was then part of the Russian Empire. Now it is the capital of Latvia.、Um, but he was a Russian Jew. And if the rise of Nazism in Germany was the kind of traumatic experience that politicized Hannah Arendt, what is comparable in Berlin's life was the Russian Revolution. When the Russian Revolution happened, The Berlin family lived in Russia proper, and the young Isaac Berlin famously saw、um, some rather violent and unpleasant scene that unfolded during the revolution. According to Berlin's own recollections, that gave him the sense of horror of physical violence, which he never forgot. So he was very, very young when he saw the violent scene.、Uh, he was probably either seven years old or eight years old, but he never forgot it. 
and um, his work about totalitarianism um, is connected to the memory and also connected to the violence of the revolution, whereas um, Hannah Arendt's work on totalitarianism uh, is connected to her experience of um, seeing firsthand the emergence of the Nazi movement. Yeah, so to follow up on on that point, both of both Arendt and Berlin are, you know, they're known for men, both known for many things, but obviously one of the things that they're both known for is their theorizing of totalitarianism. And like you, like you say, both of them have different focuses when it comes to totalitarianism. Arendt's focus tends to emphasize the, uh, the Nazi and uh, Berlin tends to emphasize Stalinism. So I wondering if you could uh, give our listeners a little bit of a uh, overview over, of their different views of totalitarianism. Yes, um, I do not want to overstate it too much, um, but one way of understanding the difference between Arendt and Berlin on totalitarianism is to think of different focus. When Arendt tried to understand totalitarianism, what she focused on was Nazism, and she tried to think about Stalinism in comparison to the Nazi case as the paradigmatic case of the totalitarian phenomenon. Whereas Berlin, when he tried to understand totalitarianism, he was, of course, thinking about um, Nazism, but he paid more attention to Stalinism and also Bolshevism. So in a way, the theories were built on different models, uh, namely the Nazi model in the case of Hannah Arendt and the Bolshevik model in the case of Berlin. Another important difference is that Arendt genuinely thought that 20th century totalitarianism was unprecedented. This is one of the keywords in Arendt's work. And to think about 20th century totalitarianism, meaning Nazism and Stalinism, analogous to oppressive regimes um, that had existed prior to the 20th century, is for Arendt to misunderstand the nature of totalitarianism. Whereas Berlin did not quite draw the distinction between 20th century totalitarianism and its precursors so sharply. And I said for Berlin, it was the Bolshevik model rather than Stalinist model, because on his view, um, it wasn't the Stalin that turned the Soviet Union into a totalitarian regime. That is Hannah Arendt's view. But Berlin thought um, there was something very totalitarian about the Soviet Union from the very beginning. So that's another uh, layer of difference. Another thing that you discuss is their their views on, on the origins of totalitarianism. Uh, Arendt obviously famously wrote book, the book of that title, um, which is, you know, a, as you say, a absolute must read um, for anyone interested in totalitarian, studying totalitarianism. And Arendt very much pins, she discusses a lot of the uh, the historical and uh, economic and social factors leading to the rise of totalitarianism, where Berlin tends to emphasize some of the ideological influences that led to the rise of totalitarianism. And I think that this uh, also demonstrates some of their different focuses. So I wondering if you kind of speak about this and then also about how this, you know, this sort of the difference between their philosophical views as a result. Uh, yeah, if that's, if that's not too much of a... <laughs> of a tall order. <laughs> well, well, I will try. Um, so that is true. There is a methodological difference um, between Arendt and Berlin as to how 
totalitarianism should be studied. And as you said, Berlin's approach was to look at ideas and think about where totalitarian ideas came from. I think the reason why Berlin took that approach was because he wanted to understand what I called in my book, the totalitarian mind, what the totalitarian thinks when he oppresses people. And that was the question he wanted to understand. And he um, drew a kind of demonology of the totalitarian tradition. So there are lots of anti-heroes in Berlin's work. Uh, Obviously, Stalin and and Hitler are anti-heroes. But then there are lots of people who are said to be behind those actual totalitarian leaders. For example, Rousseau, Fichte, Hegel, Marx, and so on. And obviously, you can hear some echo of Karl Popper's famous book, The Open Society and Its Enemies, here. So it wasn't only Berlin who was trying to figure out whose ideas um, contributed to the rise of 20th century totalitarianism. Berlin was one of the, one of the people um, who are doing it. Arendt didn't want to take that approach. I think it was a conscious decision. Uh, Arendt doesn't say much about our contemporaries. I don't think um, she explicitly criticizes either Berlin or Popper on how to study totalitarianism, but she was aware of other works on totalitarianism and she made a decision to do it differently. Part of the reason was because, as I said, she thought totalitarianism was an entirely new phenomenon. So one problem with this intellectual approach is that if you take a kind of Berlinian approach, you would likely be saying somebody like Rousseau anticipated totalitarian practice, right? But that would be to overemphasize the continuity between 18th century or 19th century political thought and a 20th century political practice from Arendt's point of view. So what she tried to do was to explain the conditions on which uh, this new phenomenon of totalitarianism could emerge. And that made her um, cultivate a rather sociological and historical approach. I think it's, you know, you discuss in, in her book, and obviously this is I think from from her writing, very clear that Arendt is very indebted to both Heidegger, Martin Heidegger, and Friedrich Nietzsche, and I think that for for many obvious reasons, Arendt does not want to make the claim or assert that Nietzsche or Heidegger, especially, were consequential in the rise of totalitarianism. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about Arendt's relationship to German philosophy uh, and her um, her defense of certain characters, Heidegger in particular, that might have had or did have associations with Nazis, with the Nazi yes. party. Yes, yes. Um, you touched on something I should have mentioned, but I forgot to, and this is an important background. So there was this propaganda effort um, going on during the war to demonize German culture and the German history. And there was a kind of um, popular phrase going on around that time which was from Martin Luther to Hitler, as if to say, you know, Martin Luther anticipated Hitler. And that was perhaps a necessary thing to do during the war when, let's say, the US government was trying to portray the German enemy in a a rather negative light. Um, But Arendt 
was fighting against that. She didn't think German culture in general, especially you know going as far as back to Martin Luther, was responsible for the eventual rise of Nazism. She thought that was uh, not only wrong, but also a way of distorting our perspective and therefore disabling us to understand what happened in the 20th century. So she was pushing back against that kind of uh, propagandistic ideas. I think another interesting issue, and, and this is a difference between, one important difference between Arendt and Berlin, Berlin tends to highlight national differences. So you see him often talking about uh, Russian intellectual history, German intellectual history, French intellectual history, and so on, and also distinct traditions of those countries. In his scheme, for example, the Romantic movement is connected to Germany as a nation, whereas Arendt does not take this kind of nationalistic approach, what she is after is very, very often an international and global history, because she thought the rise of totalitarianism in the 20th century cannot be explained by some developments in Germany or some developments in Russia alone. In order to understand that, we have to look at various factors that were happening in different parts of the world. And famously, in the in the origins of totalitarianism, she um, discusses extensively what the European empires were doing in Africa, for example. And that perspective is something quite original, I, th- I think, and uh, unique to Hannah Arendt, at least at that time. I mean, that approach has become um, quite mainstream by now, but when she began doing it, she was a genuine pioneer. You know, now that we've discussed a little bit about Arendt and Berlin's differing personal views, political views, and their views on totalitarianism, it's also, I think, very important to discuss that the two of them are some of the most seminal theorists of, uh, of liberty and, and freedom. Uh, and uh, Berlin, in particular, is very famous for explicating this sort of concept, these two concepts of negative um, and positive liberty. And Arendt, uh, in her book, uh, The Human Condition, which is one of the probably most influential philosophical treatises of the 20th century, discusses human freedom. And the two of them both have very different ideas of it. And I was wondering if you could give a little bit of a background on Berlin's view of liberty and Arendt's view of freedom and this relationship between liberty and freedom. Well, let me try to um, give a kind of brief definition or characterization of um, their preferred conceptions of freedom. As is well known, um, Berlin's preferred conception is called the negative liberty, by which he meant freedom as no interference. So if you have something you want to do and there is nobody stopping you from doing it, then you are free to do it. Arendt's conception of freedom, on the other hand, is known as political freedom. In her own words, freedom is a state of being manifest in action. So when you participate in politics uh, with other people, your fellow citizens, uh, you are free in the political sense of the term. One way of thinking about this difference would be to say, well, you know, Berlin is defending a distinctly liberal understanding of freedom. Freedom as non-interference is something that people like Benjamin Constant or John Stuart Mill defended, and Berlin was restating that idea because he was a liberal. 
Whereas if you think about Aaron's political freedom, even though there are some differences in terms of nuance, she was restating what uh, Constant described as the liberty of the ancients um, to participate in collective power and also the whole Republican tradition to connect the idea of freedom to political participation. I think this way of understanding the difference between the two is illuminating. But then the interesting question is to ask why that difference relates to their differing ideas of totalitarianism. And I think that is a key question. Uh, As I said, Stalinism and Bolshevism was the model of totalitarianism for Berlin. And he thought that the totalitarian threat often came from the state apparatus. Um, The state tries to coerce you into doing something that you don't want to do. And if you are in the Soviet Union, you disagree with the government. You don't have the liberty to say, I disagree with you. If you do that, you might be sent to a forced labor camp or otherwise you will be in trouble. So for Berlin, it was important that citizens should be allowed to have the area of privacy where they can do and say whatever they want to do and say. Arendt had a rather different concern, I think. When she thought about how totalitarianism came to emerge in the 20th century, she was often thinking about, unsurprisingly, the tragedy of the Weimar Republic, um, the liberal democratic regime that came to be destroyed by the emerging Nazi movement. According to her, one of the problems that happened in the Weimar Republic was citizens didn't participate enough in politics. They didn't care enough about what was going on in the world. They had an opportunity to stop the Nazi movement, but they didn't do enough to stop them. And they allowed the Nazis to destroy the republic they inhabited. So one of the lessons that Arendt learned, or at least she thought she learned from the tragedy of the Weimar Republic, is the inadequacy of this liberal understanding of freedom, which says you are free so long as you are allowed to do whatever you want to do in your private sphere. So for her, Republican liberty, if you call it Republican liberty, liberty as political participation, is not only a matter of some kind of self-realization, even though that is a part of the story as well. Political participation is necessary because if people do not participate in politics, if people do not care about the world, then somebody like Hitler might destroy your freedom altogether. I'm continuously, I was continuously struck when reading it about the the ways in which their views almost sit in the, uh, I guess I would call it the uncanny valley of each other's views. If, if you're familiar with the theory of, uh, or the idea of the uncanny valley, it's this idea that robots are artificial intelligence that is just barely human enough, is eerie to us because it's too similar. And things that are just ever so slightly similar uh, uh, repel us because of their similarity. And I found that in their views of liberty and freedom, there was there was a similarity, just almost, but because they were coming at it from different angles, uh, it caused them to sort of see a difference. And one thing that I that I found find to be uh, similar in both of them, and this is always what I you know thought of, of as being similar to, uh, between the two of them, was their their views and the importance of uh, of diversity of thought and opinion in the public sphere. 
And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about, you know, some of their similarities in that in that regard. I think that is one area where there are quite important differences as well as similarities. But I will begin with similarities. So one tricky question here is the issue of pluralism or plurality. Plurality is one of the key concepts for Hannah Arendt. And uh, lots of people say she must have been a pluralist, even though she never used the term, I think, pluralism, um, partly because she didn't like isms in general. So she used the term um, plurality instead. But many people think she must have been a pluralist in some sense of the term. As it happens, pluralism is a key word for Berlin, and he is credited to be the founder of this movement called Value Pluralism. So he was definitely a pluralist in some sense of the term. Um, so plurality and pluralism were important for both Arendt and Berlin. That's a, that's a similarity. But then the difference begins, which is what pluralism or plurality meant. For Arendt, the primary meaning of plurality was the plurality of, of individuals, meaning individual human beings are different from each other. And each and every single individual uh, is supposed to be able to make a unique and a distinct contribution to the world they share with others. So, so that, I think, is the primary meaning of plurality for Hannah Arendt, even though there are some other meanings uh, she assigned to plurality. For Berlin, um, there are probably two important meanings that needs to be distinguished. One is a fairly commonsensical liberal idea shared by people like John Rawls, which is the recognition that in modern society, there are lots of people who have different opinions, who have different ideas about how to live, and we have to respect those differences. And diversity is not a bad thing in any way. To impose some kind of uniformity on people is a bad thing to do, especially in modern times. So that's one meaning of pluralism for Berlin. Another meaning of uh, pluralism for Berlin, which is a bit more original one, is the recognition, it's a meta-ethical idea, that um, goods such as uh, equality, freedom, justice, etc., etc., those things are distinct and you cannot have them all meaning they cannot be harmonized with each other. So, for example, if there is a society which democratically decided that they want to um, have some public policy that increases the value of equality to a significant extent, then that society may have to sacrifice freedom at least a little bit. Um, so you have those plural values, equality and freedom, and you cannot have them all because they are in some tension with each other. So it is a, um, a more theoretical and, if, if you will, uh, meta-ethical idea of pluralism uh, that is important for Berlin. But I don't think this idea is something that ever captured Arendt's uh, imagination or attention. I was wondering if, you know, you, you, the title of the book is Hannah Arendt and Isaiah Berlin. Uh, you mentioned in the conclusion that uh, that because authors' names are uh, last name alpha, you know, organized by last name alphabetical, that this must have annoyed Berlin to see Arendt's name in front of him. And I was wondering if there was any beyond the alphabetical reason, if there was any reason why you titled it Hannah Arendt and Isaiah Berlin instead of Isaiah Berlin and Hannah Arendt. No, I think I did really want to go for the alphabetical order. Um, the reason was because I wanted it to be impartial. 
I often thought that there isn't enough impartiality in both Arendt Scholarship and Berlin Scholarship, especially, I would say, Arendt Scholarship. Uh, totally. <laughs> Uh, there are many people um, who are enthusiastic about Arendt's work and intrigued by her life. And obviously, um, she was a very charismatic individual. It is hardly surprising that there are a lot of people who find her inspiring in one way or another. And on the other hand, there are um, quite a few people who even today cannot forgive Hannah Arendt for what she wrote in Eichmann in Jerusalem. So there is a little too much partisanship uh, in Arendt scholarship, less so in Berlin scholarship. I do not want to deny that something very good comes out of um, a partisan mode of political theorizing. Uh, that does happen. But in the scheme of things, I thought there was a little too much partisanship going on uh, these days. And I thought I might perhaps be able to contribute to the scholarship by way of detaching myself um, from the object of my study, which is Arendt in Berlin. So I decided to go for the most simple solution, which is um, to um, alphabetically pair them. And I think you did an excellent job of that. I think by the end of it, I wasn't exactly sure what you thought of either Arendt or Berlin, which was actually a great way to come away from it, because I think I do have that experience, especially with Hannah Arendt, that people tend to love her or hate her. And I think you're right about Berlin, that people tend to be a bit more uh, even-keeled about their reception of him. Um, I was wondering if there, since the publication of your book, if there's anything that you said in it that you've maybe changed your mind about or anything new about Berlin and Arendt that you've learned. So far, no, I think. It's always a little scary when new archives open up because I think I looked into everything I could find um, as far as the existing archives uh, went. But of course, new archives open up all the time. And one of the latest developments was the opening of the archives of Robert Silvas, the editor of the New York Review of Books. And that happened after I finished writing my book. And he corresponded with both Hannah Arendt and Isa Berlin because both of them were contributors to the New York Review of Books. And I was rather terrified um, because it was possible that um, something new would show up and um, refute my argument immediately after the publication of the book. But fortunately, I um, quickly looked into it. Uh, so far as I can tell, there is nothing um, that destroys my argument from that archive. But uh, we never know uh, what's going to happen in the future. Just one uh, further thought about an earlier point uh, about impartiality. I, I, I think I was a bit surprised that when I presented an earlier uh, version of the chapters in various places, I was often asked by um, people in the audience, so which side do you think won the argument? Well, which side are you on? I thought that was a really bad way of thinking about um, disagreement between philosophers, or political theorists, or intellectuals, because you are imagining intellectual disagreement as though it is some kind of, you know, debating competition. But that shouldn't be the question we um, should be asking. The, a better question to ask, I think there are two. One is, why did they disagree in the way they did in the first place? Because often they disagree because they begin from different premises. 
And the disagreeing parties often cannot tell why the disagreement happens. And in the case of Arendt and Berlin, this question is especially important because they did come from very different backgrounds and they did have very different premises. So what I was trying to do was to explain why you know, they couldn't really understand each other in the first place before even disagreeing with each other. And the second important question I think we should ask when we see um, disagreement is what can I do with those conflicting ideas put on the table by disagreeing parties? Because after all, by the way, I'm a political theorist rather than a historian. That's my disciplinary identity. So what really matters is not only understand why they disagree and you know how the disagreement occurs. That is a historical question. But important theoretical question has to be what can I or can you, the reader, do with those conflicting ideas uh, left to us? And that is an important question and a lot more important question than asking which side won. Thank you. Um, so I, you know, I think my last question for you is if you're working on anything new, if you could tell us a little bit about it, obviously you spent a very long time working on this. So if you're just in the preliminary preliminary phase of something, we won't hold it, uh, uh hold, hold it against you if you don't, uh, continue on. So, uh, what have you been, been working on recently? Well, the first thing to say is to take a break from Arendt and Berlin. So I haven't been reading Arendt or Berlin or books about, articles about either of them. I'm actively avoiding them after spending so much time uh, reading and writing about them. I am beginning to do something very, very different. I don't know if it's really um, going to be my next big project, but I have been trying to um, think about how the idea of freedom, which has been my preoccupation, not only in this book, but also in other um, articles and um, writings I have done, how the idea of freedom travels to different cultural spheres and what happens when the idea of freedom goes to uh, a strange place. And I have been writing about freedom in the East Asian context and how the, broadly speaking, Berlinian negative liberty was abused by Japanese liberals to justify their aggression against China. I don't know um, how far I can go with this new topic, but at the moment I've been reading quite a lot about 19th century political thought and liberal imperialism especially. And I'm trying to eventually compare the Japanese uh, liberal imperialists and the British liberal imperialists. So that's um, something which may or may not happen, but you uh, will be able to find out in five years or 10 years. Well, that sounds, sounds fascinating. Regardless if it materializes, I'm sure it will serve whatever project you work on down the road. Uh, so I want to thank you so much for, for being on the New Books Network and you know, we hope to have you again sometime in the near future. Thank My you. Pleasure. Thank you very much.